the story of psychology based on the work of Dr. C. George Bore with your host, Professor Todd. Part one, the ancients, the philosophies and religions of the Roman Empire. Rome was founded circa 500 B.C. 300 years later, by 200 B.C., Rome ruled most of Italy, and by 150 B.C., it conquered Carthage, the greatest power of the Western Mediterranean at the time. By 150 B.C., only three cities had over 100,000 people living in them, Antioch, Alexandria, and Rome. And by 44 BC, Rome would rule them all. When Julius Caesar was assassinated in 44 BC, pretty much the way that Shakespeare described it, that ended the vigorous Roman Republic. Julius Caesar's adopting heir called himself Augustus Caesar, the August One, and he became the first Roman emperor. The Roman Empire would reach its greatest extent by 116 AD under the Emperor Trajan. As you can imagine, the best minds of Rome were absorbed into politics, war, and economics. Few had the luxury of abstract philosophizing. Besides which, the Greeks had already done that, and look how far it got them. Quite a number of Greek philosophers wound up as Roman slaves, tutoring the youth of the Roman aristocracy. So in this atmosphere, we find a powerful, renewed interest among rich and poor alike in religion. The old religion of Rome was given lip service, to be sure, but most saw the gods as little more than stories to scare naughty children, except, of course, for when the adults themselves got frightened. They were looking for comfort in uncertain times, and they found philosophy too dry. Many different cults of the Great Mother, of Dionysus, of Isis from Egypt, of Mithra from Persia, Baal from Syria, Yahweh from Palestine. Many different cults became popular. And eventually, the Judaic sect that we now call Christianity would prevail over them all. Now, why should we talk about religion and religious philosophies in a story about the history of psychology? And there's actually a number of reasons. First, religion, philosophy, science, and psychology all come from the same human roots. We have a strong desire, even a need, to understand the nature of the universe and our place in that universe and the meaning of our own lives. Religion included answers to these issues that have been philosophically satisfying as well as socially and politically powerful. Philosophy began by separating from religion in the Greek and Roman times, and yet a great majority of people stuck with religion for their answers. In the Renaissance and the Enlightenment, science began to separate both from religion and philosophy, and still, a great majority remained loyal to religious dogma. 
And so throughout much of history, religions have often taken a strong anti-philosophical and anti-scientific position. Psychology inherits some of these issues, even in our modern era. And so it's valuable for any student of history, of philosophy, science, or psychology to understand the roots of religious belief and the lingering power of those beliefs. Neoplatonism. Roman philosophy was rarely more than a pale reflection of Greek philosophy, with occasional flares of literary brilliance, but with very few innovative ideas. So on one hand, there was the continuation of a sensible, if somewhat plodding, Stoic philosophy, bolstered by some extent to the tendency to eclecticism, such as with Cicero. And on the other hand, there was a growing movement toward a somewhat mystical philosophy, an outgrowth of Stoicism, usually referred to as Neoplatonism. Its best-known proponent was Plotinus. Plotinus, 204-269 AD, was born in Lycopolis in Egypt. He studied with Ammonius Saccas, a philosopher and dock worker, and a teacher of the church father Origen in Alexandria. Plotinus left for Rome in 224, where he would teach until his death. He would have considerable influence over Emperor Julian the Apostate, who tried unsuccessfully to return the Roman Empire to a philosophical version of paganism against the rising tide of Christianity at the time. On a military campaign to Persia, Plotinus encountered a variety of Persian and Indian ideas that he blended with Plato's philosophy. God is the supreme being, the absolute unity, and is indescribable. Any words, including the ones that I've just used, imply some limitation. So God is best referred to as the one, eternal and infinite. Creation, Plotinus believed, is a continuous outflow from the one, with each spasm of creation a little less perfect than the one before. Now, the first outflow is called the nous, N-O-U-S, the, the divine intelligence or the divine mind, also referred to as the logos. And it's second only to the one, the nous contemplates the one, but itself is no longer unitary. It is nous that contains the forms or ideas that the earlier Greeks talked about. Then comes psyche, the world soul. Psyche is projected from the nous into time. This psyche is fragmented into all of the individual souls in the universe. And finally, from Psyche emanates the world of space, matter, and the senses. Now, it's interesting to note, and we'll talk about this in the future, that the Gospel of John specifically refers to Jesus as the Logos. So, spirituality, 
according to Plotinus, involves moving from the senses to the contemplation of one's own soul, the contemplation of the world soul, and eventually to contemplation of the divine intelligence, an upward flow toward the one. Ultimately, we require direct ecstatic communication with the one in order to be liberated, to be set free. So this made Neoplatonism quite compatible with Christianity, the Christianity of ascetic monks, of the church fathers, and with the other forms of mysticism that would flourish during the following 1800 years. Another proponent of Neoplatonism is Hypatia of Alexandria, 370 to 415 AD. Hypatia was a woman of great intellect, and she became associated with an enemy of the Christian bishop Cyril. He apparently ordered his monks to take care of her. So they stripped Hypatia naked, dragging her from her home, beat her, cut her with tiles, and finally burned her battered body. Raphael, however, thought enough of her to include her in his masterpiece, The School of Athens. Mithraism One of the most popular religions of the Roman Empire, especially among Roman soldiers, was Mithraism. Its origins are Persian, and it involves the ancient hierarchy of gods as restructured by Zarathustra, circa 628 to 551 BC, in the holy books called the Avestus. The universe was seen as involved in an eternal fight between light and darkness, personified by Ahura Mazda, the good, and Ahariman, the evil. Now, this idea probably influenced the Jews while they were in exile in Babylon. And this is probably where they adopted Hashatan, or Satan, as the embodiment of the evil one. Now, within this Persian pantheon, Mithra was the judger of souls and the protector. And he was considered representative of the Ahura Mazda on earth. Mithra, legend says, was incarnated into human form, as prophesied by Zarathustra in 272 BC. He was born of a virgin who was called the mother of God, Mithra's birthday was celebrated December 25th, and he was called the light of the world. After teaching for 36 years, Mithra ascended into heaven in 208 BC. There were many similarities with Christianity. The Mithraists believed in heaven and hell, in judgment and resurrection. They had a baptism and a communion of bread and wine. They believed in service to God and others. In the Roman Empire, Mithra became associated with the sun and was referred to as the sol invictus, or the unconquerable sun. The first day of the week, Sunday, was devoted to prayer to him. Mithraism became the official religion of Rome for some 300 years, and the early Christian church later adopted Sunday as their holy day, and December 25th as the birthday of Jesus. 
Mithra became the patron saint of soldiers. Soldiers in the Roman legions believed that they should fight for the good, for the light. They believed in self-discipline and chastity and brotherhood. Note that the custom of shaking hands comes from the Mithraic greetings of Roman soldiers. It was operated like a secret society with rites of passage in the form of physical challenges. Like in the Gnostic sects, which we will discuss later, there were seven grades, each protected by a planet. And since Mithraism was restricted to men, the wives of the soldiers often belonged to clubs of the great mother worshippers, the great mother being Sybil. One of the women's rituals involved a baptism in blood by having an animal slaughtered over the initiate who is lying in a pit. Now, this combined with the myth of Mithra killing the first living creature, a bull, and forming the world from the bull's body was adopted by the Mithraists as well. When Constantine converted the Roman Empire to Christianity, he outlawed Mithraism. But a few Zoroastrians still exist today in India, and the Mithraic holidays were celebrated in Iran until the Ayatollah came to power. And, of course, Mithraism survives more subtly in various European and even American and Christian traditions. Gnosticism. Gnosticism refers to a variety of religio-philosophical traditions going back to the times of the Egyptians and the Babylonians. All forms of Gnosticism involve the idea that the world is made up of two things, matter on one hand and mind or spirit on the other. Matter is considered negative or even evil. But the mind or the spirit is positive. Gnostics believe that the way that we progress toward an ultimate or a pure form of spirit, God, is by attaining secret knowledge. It is your beliefs, not anything that you do in the material world, that guarantees your ultimate salvation. And many times, this secret knowledge is described as the way and it is announced by a Savior sent by God. The details of the various Gnostic sects depend upon the mythological metaphors that are used. Egyptian, Babylonian, Greek, Jewish, Christian. Gnosticism overall was heavily influenced by Persian religions, Zoroastrianism and Mithraism, and by Platonic philosophy. There was a strong dependence on astrology, which they inherited from the Babylonians. Especially significant are the seven planets, which represent the seven spheres that the soul must pass through to reach God. Magical incantations, prayers, and formulas, often of Semitic origins, were also important. When Christianity hit the stage, Gnosticism adapted to it quickly, and began to promote itself as a higher, truer form of Christianity. And their theology looked like this. At first, there was just God, 
a kind of absolute. Then there were emanations from God, called his sons, or ions. The youngest of these ions was Sophia, wisdom, and the first female son. Sophia had a flaw, which was pride, which then infected the rest of the universe. We need to undo this flaw, this original sin, but we cannot do it on our own. We need a savior ion. We need someone who can release Sophia from the bonds of error and restore her to her status as an emanation of God. Worship among the Gnostics included baptism, confirmation, and the Eucharist. In fact, it is likely that several of the non-canonical Gospels were written by Christian Gnostics, and some say John, the author of the Gospel of John, was also Gnostic. Gnosticism was strongly refuted in the early Christian church in the 100s and 200s, as well as by the Neoplatonist, like Plotinus, who saw it as a corruption of Plato's thought. In fact, of course, the reason for the animosity was more a matter of how similar Gnosticism was to Christianity and to Neoplatonism. Manichaeism Manichaeism was founded by Mani, born 215 A.D. in Persia. At age 12, Mani was visited by an angel, who told him to be pure for 12 more years, at which time he would be rewarded by becoming a prophet. He would eventually consider himself the seal, i.e. the last of the prophets, a title that Muhammad would later claim for himself. Forced to leave Persia, he wandered east, preaching a Gnostic version of Mithraism, with elements of Judaism, Christianity, and Buddhism. He considered himself an apostle of Jesus. When he returned to Persia, he was imprisoned and later crucified. In Manichaeism, Ormazd, a corruption of the name Ahura Mazda, is the good god, the god of light, the creator of souls. There is also a god of evil and darkness, sometimes referred to as Jehovah, who created the material world, even trapping Ormuzd souls in bodies. Another tradition has Ormuzd containing light within a vessel, but the light is too powerful and the vessel is shattered, and these fragments of light, these splinters of the divine, fall to earth and are placed within human beings. Human beings, of course, the physical mannequins of the evil god. So there is light trapped inside of darkness. Mani believed that salvation comes through knowledge, self-denial, vegetarianism, fasting, and chastity. The elect are those who follow the rules most stringently. Their ultimate reward is a release of the light from its prison, a return to the divine. Mani and his followers were severely persecuted by the Persians and the Romans alike. Still, the religion of Manichaeism spread to Asia Minor, India, China, the Middle East, as far away as Spain. 
It lasted in Europe until the 10th century AD and influenced later Christian heresies such as the Bogomils and the Cathars. St. Augustine St. Aurelius Augustine of Hippo, 354 to 430 AD, was a Manichaean for 10 years before he converted to Christianity in 386 AD. He would go on to become the best-known Christian philosopher prior to the Middle Ages. He is best known to us for the first truly psychological, introspective account of his search for truth, a book titled The Confessions. A hint of the intimate detail of his account can be gotten from one of his best-known quotes. He prayed to God, Give me chastity and continence, but not yet. His philosophy is a loose adaptation of Plato to the requirements of Christianity. In order to reconcile the idea that God is good with the evil that obviously exists in the world, he turned to the concept of free will and our personal responsibility for sin. He emphasized intentions over actions when it comes to assigning moral responsibility. There are, of course, problems with these arguments. If God is omniscient and omnipotent, he knows what we will do, and in fact, made us this way. So, isn't he still responsible for evil? And besides which, Despite the admittedly great evil we human beings do to each other, aren't there also natural disasters, diseases that could be considered evil and have yet nothing to do with our free will? These arguments would trouble philosophers all the way until the 20th century. See Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov, for examples. Augustine became Bishop of Hippo in 395, he died in 430 during the siege of Hippo by the Vandals, a Germanic tribe that conquered North Africa, which was the breadbasket of Italy in those times. You could say that he lived through the fall of the Roman Empire. The Fall of Rome The Roman Empire was seriously declining. The economy began to stagnate. Too much money was being used simply to maintain the borders and the unity of the empire. Cities began to deteriorate. City services declined. Hunger and disease severely hurt the poor. Many moved out of the country, where they found themselves working in the great lafundi, what we would call the agribusiness, as peasants and artisans. Free peasants turned over their ownership of land to these powerful landlords in exchange for protection. In turn, these lafunde were ready-made mini-kingdoms for the barbarian chieftains who would be coming very soon. By the 3rd century, the empire was being attacked from every direction. It was nobly defended by 33 legions of 5,000 men each. Internally, it was suffering from sheer size, and in 395, it officially split into two halves, the Western Roman Empire and the Eastern Roman Empire. In the 400s, the Huns entered Europe from the Russian steppes, and they got as far as the Kalyans near Paris. They spread terror everywhere they went. The empire collapsed 
in 476, but not before they set dozens of German tribes in motion toward the Roman Empire. The Romans fought some off, paid some off, and let some in to protect the borders. Most of the mighty legions were eventually composed of German soldiers. One very large tribe, the Visigoths, the Western Goths, as opposed to the Ostrogoths of the East, the Visigoths began to move toward Italy from their settlements in the Balkans. In 410, they destroyed Rome. The western half of the Roman Empire was for all intents and purposes dead and in the hands of various invaders. The eastern Roman Empire was also in decline and was plagued by wars, both internal and external. The Emperor Justinian, 527 to 565, tried but failed to reconquer Italy and sent the Eastern Empire into financial crisis. His efforts to discourage pagan philosophies and eliminate Christian heresies would eventually lead to much dissatisfaction with his rule. On the other hand, Justinian codified Roman law and adapted it to Christian theology, and he promoted great works such as the building of the Hagia Sophia, which is with its incredibly large dome and beautiful mosaics. The barbarians at the gates were only part of the empire's problems, however. There was a famine in the remnants of the Roman Empire on and off from 400 through 800. There was a plague in the 500s. The empire's population dropped by 50%. The city of Rome's population dropped by 90%. And so by 700, only Constantinople, the capital of the Eastern Roman Empire, had more than 100,000 people. In the late 600s, Arabs conquered Egypt and Syria, up to then had been part of the Eastern Empire. And the Arabs attempted to take Constantinople itself. By the 700s, Europe was attacked by the Bulgars, a Mongol tribe the Khazars, a Turkish tribe which had adopted Judaism, the Magyars, the Hungarians, and others. The Eastern Empire would see the Turks take Anatolia, which was then renamed to Turkey in 1071, and finally take Constantinople in 1453, changing its name to Istanbul. The Turks continued to use the name Istanbul, although many in the West continued to call it Constantinople. By the 20th century, the name was officially and finally changed to Istanbul. But meanwhile, Western Europe was ruled by various size gangster-like hierarchies of illiterate warriors. The great mass of people were reduced to slave-like conditions tilling the soil or in service jobs in the greatly reduced cities. You know, we don't call them the Dark Ages for nothing. But when the sun sets on one civilization, it is usually rising somewhere else.